You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is our Iron Range in Minnesota week, and I am sitting across the table from my good friend, Aaron Brown. Aaron, hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad to be on. That was fun the first time, and I can only imagine how much fun this will be. <laughs> well, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're in the same room. That's a start. That doesn't happen often Yeah, enough. right. I got lampooned last time for our funny accents. <laughs> Well, because, you know, you get, I think both of us in our separate, mm -hmm. like, you know, social yeah, we, we can ecosystems. Put on our, we can put on our, our professional <laughs> voice. Exactly. And now I'm using my resonant professional voice. And <laughs> but when you get us together and we're chatting, yeah. you know, it kind of gets it goes back right and back there. It just, it's real easy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, the problem is I live in the woods of Northern Minnesota and I write and I teach, but basically I'm allowed to have this accent all the time. Right. Uh, right. Other than occasionally when I, but, but it's now it's my thing. I can do that, but you've got to walk uh, all over the world I here, do, man. I do. I do. It's, it's funny because, uh, I will travel and people will not necessarily be able to pin me as a Minnesotan. Uh huh. The worst one ever, I did this interview and, uh, I was talking about North Dakota and I just kept cocking about North Dakota and North Dakota this and North Dakota that. And I listened to myself later and I'm like, nobody calls it North Dakota. That's, it's North Dakota. Uh -huh. Come on, you yeah. knucklehead. Yeah. But yeah, yeah that was, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're coming up here for a week on the range. I'm excited about it because the charge we have and the way we kind of presented this, to the Blandon Foundation and to the IRRB that is helping to support this is that we want to put a highlight and focus the things that are often overlooked, but the things that really make a place work and tick. And I wanted to chat with you because I wanted to get your insights on, on some of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So let's start kind of where we were five minutes ago before I turned on the recorder. I, I want to talk a little bit about the shift that I feel is happening, that you feel is happening, that we can see in places like Minneapolis and Duluth, larger cities that have kind of an influx of new thinking and, and new thoughts. Where do you think we're at in this area known as the Iron Range with having, I don't want to say the, the established order kicked out, mm -hmm. but, but having the, the notion that there are, there's maybe multiple ways to do something productive, having like an openness to some new ideas start to emerge. Well, I was 2001. I was editor of the Hibbing Daily Tribune and until present, I've been in teaching and writing and, and various things ever since. So I have this 15 year professional window that I've been really closely watching the Iron Range and, and what's been happening here. And, and it feels like we're getting closer. Uh, you mentioned some of those places. We mentioned Duluth or Minneapolis. Obviously, the change has already started or continues in those places. I think we're knocking on the door on the range. And it's purely, I was hesitant to say it before, but I really do think it's generational. Sure. It's, it's, it's related to your age because you're seeing the fact that, you know, now that baby boomers are officially starting to retire, 
uh, for normal reasons, you're starting to see that younger people are seeping in, if only by default, to some of our organizations. And, and you, you're starting to see some change related to that, particularly as those younger people kind of are able to get out of the influence of a much more dominant baby boomer or older majority, where there's less pressure to maintain the norms of here's how we've always done it right, and that kind of right. thing. And, and on the range, it is, it's, it's everything's all together, whether it's politics or policy or, or attitude or culture, it's all kind of related and part of the same, it's a geographically interesting place, kind of isolated and, and, and has relationships with Duluth and Minneapolis, but basically has its own thing going on. So the fact that the, um, demographics are older here is probably what's slowing this change. I, I feel like you have a, a whole generation. You have the majority of the electorate now, let's mm -hmm. put it that way, who did not grow up in a time when mining was expanding mm -hmm. or mining was looked at as like the career opportunity. Yeah. Is that part of this mental shift? I know a lot of people who are retirees, near retirees, lived in a mining culture that was very different than the one mm -hmm. we see today. I think the, I think the the last unrestrained ridiculous optimism in mining was at the peak of the taconite boom which was late 70s which is when I was born and 82 is when the bottom fell out of that boom and so 82 and beyond we've had ups and downs and we will continue to have something like ups and something like downs but if you have adult memories before 1982, then you're in one class of, of people. Then, then there's everybody else who was either in school at that time or um, not born yet, which is the case now. You've got a whole different attitude about about the way mining interacts with the economy. And and part of the problem, though, is that, that because mining was, was so huge, was such a big part of the percentage of employment and everything else for all those years. I mean, in the 1950s, like everybody worked for the mine or a vendor or, or somebody connected to the mines, you know, everybody, every, every man did, of course. Right. And so you had this whole culture built around that. And now everybody since 1982 knows that there's, it's, it, it's probably going to let you down, you know? Um, and fool me once. Yeah, that's right. And the <laughs> other mind. thing is, right. is, is a whole generation there in the eighties and nineties left or, or, or the kids knew that living here wasn't likely to be an option or they didn't perceive it as an option. It's always been an option, but a lot of people, I always say like whenever they ask me about the politics or, you know, in election years, you know, well, how, what about, what's the range going to do in this election? And I always say, well, you have to remember half the range is down there in the fifth and the fourth districts down in the twin cities. They're not, you know, they're not up here in the right. district. Right. They don't live here <laughs> yeah. anymore. Yeah. And so right. yeah, you have to look at, you know, is, is the range getting more conservative? And I say, well, in that the liberal ones are leaving. Right. <laughs> right. Know? Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the ones that were born up, you know, brought up in the DFL family. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and now the summer cabin people who, you know, you have retirees are, and, and, and then you have um, people who for, culturally conservative reasons like where they're at and and, right. and and don't want to make a big change. And so that's why, you know, when we talk about political trends, a lot of this is where are people moving and what are they doing? We've got this kind of gap in our demographics from this period where 
young people didn't think about coming back the same way they they might now. Typically what happens is a lot of these folks do move away and then you hear at a reunion or something at the 10 year at the 20 year says, oh, I wish I could come back, you know, yeah, that'd yeah, be great, yeah. it'd be super. But now they're, you know, super leveraged into an expensive house in the Twin Cities and then, right. and, and there's no job that could remotely pay what they would need to, to get out of all that. Right. So It seems like Part of this transition, too, was our way to respond to, and I'll use the word decline. I don't mean decline in the, like, in the Detroit sense. Mm -hmm. I mean it in the boomtown kind of sense. Mm -hmm. Like, we, we had this economy that reached these enormous highs. Yeah. Because we were extracting. Right. And then that went away, that those, that, that inflow of capital, in a sense, went away. And we've been struggling to figure out how to respond. It seems like for a long time, the response was, I'll just like categorize it, the big pipe. You know, let's replace this one big boom with a- another big boom that we can manufacture either over here. We'll subsidize this thing to come in or we'll put in this big bunch of infrastructure and hope that something happens. It seems like for very practical reasons, like we're, out of, we're running out of money, mm-hmm. like that is waning. Mm-hmm. How much of that is part of this transition as well? Depends on whether you're thinking in terms of, you know, our human lifetimes or <laughs> or uh, or ge- geological time. <laughs> in the grand scale of uh, I'm going way back now. This is this is a problem. If you look at after the glaciers left. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. Um and the people that would populate this area, this was always a resource area, right? Know? And it was known more for its food and and game that were available before mining and, and, and its various properties were interesting to the peoples who lived here. But when you go to our Eurocentric American version of settlement 120 years ago, 125 years ago, right. not really that long not ago. Not that long, just a blink of the eye. Uh, yep. You know, um, my grandpa knew a guy who was the first guy, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Very much so. Yep. If you think of it that way, this has always been this way. Yeah. Because it was the clapboard towns that shot up in the middle and literally it was it was the northwest. They call if you read the old papers, this was the northwest <laughs> right. of the United States. Right. It was the frontier. Yeah. Um it was perceived uh, as the end of the road. You know, the reason uh down by Duluth, but the reason Proctor has the name Proctor is because it was named for uh, I think it was James Proctor not, who was a guy who said there's why are we sending money up there there's for a railroad there's 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 no people there right. as a joke they named the they town, town after him <laughs> yeah <laughs> this was at foundation a, a just a very remote area and even though uh like native people lived here it was always an area where because it was in the north it was kind of hostile weather you know it was an area where people migrated through here they they it was difficult to keep a, a settlement here right you know Virtually, well, since the glaciers left, right. you know. Well, if the mosquitoes didn't get you in the summer, the, yeah. the, the cold got you in the winter. Because you got the cold, you got the bugs, right. you got the, 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 the weather. I mean, it's a very, mm-hmm. very big climate uh, right. area, just, just a huge spread. So 
if you go from the resource days, it was first with timber, then with um, the, then with iron mining, you have always this history. And, and I mean, the boom times, we talk about the boom of the 70s, the taconite boom, well, it's just a tiny, tiny little blip compared to the boom of the 1910s and 20s, sure. which was just huge. When when uh, Victor Power, Mayor of Hibbing, uh, I, know, I know you're headed to Hibbing. I am. Victor Power was uh, widely, as the mayor of this little frontier town of Hibbing was being bandied about as a Republican uh, governor candidate and actually had national publications either vilifying him or trumpeting his success <laughs> as this mayor of this little town in northern Minnesota because his budget for a year was the same size as the state of Delaware. Um, oh, wow. Because Hibbing had all of its iron mines in its... Um, I was just going to make a Sarah Palin limits. joke, and then yeah. you blew me out yeah, of the yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, but it was it, it kind of spooky. Like, and actually, Alaska is not terribly. No, uh, the the history there is very similar. Very similar um, because yeah. of the oil money, and it, it's this very, very much a remote state. Right. But this that's how it was here, and so these people who were here, kind of political powers, kind of marshaled their forces, and it. But it happened like Victor Power was was a child inhibiting in the frontier days mm -hmm. and he grew up to be the mayor and and by the time he was mayor uh in his 40s he was you know this this titan of local history is a very respected place yeah. yeah yeah and it was it and then from that you go into um the depression and the big bust that followed the depression and and then world war 2 and then you're into modern history you're right here right. so right. we've never settled it's never quite settled down. The last 30 years have been remarkable for their slow decline mm -hmm. as opposed to the crazy right. you know machinations that we've gotten used to before that. So it's been a quiet time in range history and we've been forced to sit and think about what do you want to call it decline or right. industrial leveling off or or whatever you <laughs> right. want to call it but right. return to normal <clears throat> yeah and yeah. so like we're we're upset right now because we're in a down period for mining because we went from 5000 miners a couple of years ago, uh, maybe almost 5,000 miners down to in the 3,000s right now. North Shore is going back. So, I mean, we're in the 3,000s. And so, you know, a 20 or 35% drop in mining employment. Well, in 1970 or 1978-79, it, it was darn near 12,000 miners. Sure. You know, and then in World War Two, I mean, it was... 80, 90,000 miners, yeah, you know, and so, right, um, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so as a percentage of the, yeah, the economy, yeah, right. Okay. Let me ask this then, because I struggle with this. I, I see the same thing in Brainerd, by mm -hmm. the way, you talk to the people who are there and they'll say, well, without the rail yard and without the mill, mm -hmm. we, this place is, you know, this place is nothing. We need to get the mill working again. And, and I, I look around and yeah, my grandpa was a foreman at the mill. My dad worked at the mill for a little while. But no one my generation ever mm -hmm. worked at the mill or desired to work at the mill. And I didn't even notice it closing, really. I mean, mm. I'm, I know families did, but yeah. it was not really a – it seems like we didn't skip a beat in a sense. Like the economy had moved on. Oh, yeah. And and I feel the same way. Now, I do have friends who, 
from high school who now work in a mine or in a mining operation of, you know, we have some different varieties of mining now. Sure. I, I've got a, a couple who do it. At, at the time we gra all graduated, none of us thought we'd ever work in a mine. You right, know? right. Um, and then, of course, like you say, my dad briefly worked in a mine. And then my grandpa was a miner. Mm -hmm. And then great-grandfather was a miner. So, you, we're, but we're separated. And exactly that, you know, I think it's, people tend to want what they know works, you know, and what they remember working and they want a spirit a vibe. They want a, some way they felt about their community to be returned to them. And, and so it's really easy to say, well, well, I felt that way when we had this mining employment and this, this environment in our town that seemed to be going well at the time, certainly for me, right. You know, or, or whoever's speaking in this case, but, but meanwhile, like you said, you know, um, kids in the 80s and 90s were playing their Nintendos and right. and thinking about doing something else, watching different shows, watching shows from other places. People yeah. in cities and other places. Learning about this right. crazy new thing called the internet. Right. You know, I remember when I was a senior in high school, they brought in the internet and there was a computer <laughs> in a room and yeah. you could go there and it was the Type internet. Type things in. You, oh could, you could just search for things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, but that was the world I remember. Uh, you know, I wasn't thinking about working in a taconite mine, and only really because of my interest in, in economics and history in my home area did I ever really get to learn about that you, so much. You teach at the college here. Yeah, the Hibbing Community College. What, what do your students want to do? Mm -hmm. The community college thing is fascinating. Yeah. Because, you know, if you didn't have the community college up here, this whole swath of kids would either be yeah. no college or they would leave. Right, because we're a community and technical college. So, right. So we've got maybe 40% of our students are looking to transfer, go for, on for their bachelor's degree. And then the rest are training for one or two years for a career of some sort. Sure. But I, I love where I teach. And I, I went What do you from, teach? I teach public speaking and communication classes. Okay. So I'm the guy and I'm required. So, ah, uh, so I'm required you, by sure. I'm required by every program. <laughs> Somebody kind of dislikes you a little bit, the so students, because you're I like, am, "Oh, I gotta go." Now take I gotta tell you a story uh, because uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, my dad was on and off of work all the time, laid off. He was a diesel mechanic and got laid off, and and at one point uh, he got a job teaching on a temporary basis at the technical, the, the range Votech, it was called then, okay. uh, teaching diesel mechanics. And it was just a fill-in job, but it was, you know, it was nice. Hey, dad has work. It's days, day shifts. You know, right. this is great. I remember the conversations at the dinner table when I was a kid. Oh, if if I go get my licensure, my training, I can, they, they say there might be a job for me that's permanent. And he started to go to the classes and he, one day he came, he, I just, it was mom told us or someone told dad doesn't do that anymore. He, he refused to go anymore. Would later learn that it was because they make him take a bunch of stupid classes and he wasn't going to do it. And it was the class that I teach now. Yeah. yeah. So you have a healthy respect for the, I have very, I tell, the tension I always, that people have. I, I always when tell them whenever I room. have a diesel mechanics or one of those groups, I, I don't get those as often as I used to when I was a younger teacher, but I always tell them that story because uh, like, I, listen, I, I totally get it. Right. More than you know. Right. <laughs> right. Because I was a kid thinking like, man, you know, having, having dad have a job would be nice, you know. Right. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> Come on. You can't do that speech you class. You can't just do the one class. I have right. to go to school. Can't you go to school? Right. Um, but um, no, that wasn't what you did. Um, my dad, yeah. I mean, my dad mm -hmm. worked at the mill and got hurt and mm -hmm. couldn't return and went to school. And it's funny because I remember the same thing. He went to be a teacher 
he had some like music class where you had to teach music. Well, first of all, my dad, no music. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's not, doesn't have musical talent. A. Yeah. B, incredibly self-conscious person. I mean, just brought up in that generation, but then also he had polio and just didn't like, he always felt like he, maybe he didn't quite fit in anyway. Mm-hmm. And then to have to stand up and it, that was, he would rather have taken all the advanced math and all the stuff that he hated as opposed to that one class. Yeah, right. So that's you. That's me. I look at my job and, and believe me, I, I was looking to get out of the, the, I'll call it a rat race, but it was certainly the underpaid environment of a daily journalist. Yeah. Uh, oh, I hear you. Yeah. You, you probably know better than most. Just the long hours as the editor of a, of a small town daily. And as I wanted to get out of that, so I wanted to go back to school to teach. And, and this was always a subject area. You know, I was in speech in high school and public speaking has always been something I've been interested in. And I knew that they needed this, that the person at the college was going to retire in a couple of years. And I knew that if I got my degree, my master's degree, that I could, I could, I could teach sure. for that job. And right. so I timed it that way. And, but I've come to really look at my job as totally compatible with everything I write about at the blog or, or talk about for the range, because it's, the range is a story of upward mobility, right? That at its best, it was producing tremendous upward mobility, Sons and daughters of immigrants were achieving things in the world, not always here, but somewhere, you know, and they were accomplishing things. They didn't and, build those beautiful high schools with the, with the idea that their kids would go work right. in the mine. They would have just made right. boxy old buildings if they were yeah. going to send them back out to the mine. They, they, right. they built cathedrals to education. If you look at the old halls and things, it's all about education. So I really view, especially at the community college, we take everyone. You know, this is not an exclusive, uh, you know, it's an open door uh, facility and anybody who has an inkling that they might want to do a little better for themselves wanders in. Right. And and if they apply themselves and, and, and really want it, they wander out or they, they, they stride out uh, with, with purpose. They emerge able to move a rung up. You know, on the ladder, right? And and I'm in the one class because I really do. If you look at employment and and why do jobs not work out for people? Why do people fail? And you look at it's often communication, mm-hmm. and it's often, especially for advancement. Like if if you are in a class of people who can stand up and present an idea. Uh, an opinion or a fact or whatever right. it is. You're an elite group. You're people. in a group of people that, right. that inherently will, 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 will not starve. Right. You know, right. In, in this right. modern world. Yeah. Now in the post-apocalyptic world to come, may, maybe you right. will starve. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right now yeah. that's, that's more, that's what they call marketable skill. Right. So I really feel like I'm taking the people, whether I think about my dad or I think about me and my sisters and, and, and how it was for us growing up. I was, I got where I got because of teachers a lot of the time, you know, right. my parents didn't, they, they wanted the best for me, but they weren't college graduates, right? you know, they, they didn't even know where to tell me to go. I, I had to kind of just do that it. That wasn't in their experience. Yeah. And so the, te- right. the teachers kind of filled in the gaps. And, and so I, I really see what I do is very compatible with that, you know, because, and, and, and plus from an economic standpoint, having these community colleges, the ability to what I you know, the research I've done and, and looked into the ability to train people strategically for, for jobs, for, for vocations that are only now starting to exist 
I mean, if you're really strategic about that, you can have a big impact on an economy. Right. And so I, I see all that as, as, as that's my day job, but I, it's also a passion. What do these, what do these kids want to do? I mean, if you, yeah. if I'm a, if I'm a kid, mm-hmm. you know, am I doing this to get out or mm-hmm. am I doing this to stay? The people who most want to go into mining, for mm-hmm. instance, let's just yeah get into the, you know, because the, the mining has gone through changes as people retired. There have been lots of new hires, had been prior to this current downturn. If a student really wants to stay in northern Minnesota, live on the Iron Range, go hunting, go fishing, live the lifestyle and culture of this place, they will they will pursue mining as a career because it's compatible with that goal. Sure. But in terms of the 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 truly like I want to be a miner, you don't hear that much. Yeah. Yeah. Um if you do, it's a person who wants to be an engineer or a mining engineer or a supervisor or a uh, geologist or you know and and actually as I've come to know mining, I mean my grandfather, great grandfather, was a mining engineer, and chasing the veins of ore under the ground, and right. and, and 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 there's a there's a certain it's a lot of technical work, yeah, a lot mine. of technical right. work, and a lot of uh, science, and a lot of adventure. If you're mm-hmm. into rocks, anyway, it's kind of a lot of adventure, you know, and you get to go out and drill and test and try things, and 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 so it's a it's an invigorating field if if right. you're into that stuff you get to use your brain yeah yeah uh and and mining is increasingly i mean we have the vision of the you know the seven dwarves clanking on right. the sides of the, with their pickaxe at their pickaxes uh, <laughs> uh harvesting <I> harvesting <laughs> jewels uh from the sides of this cave it's of course not like that it's more like being a truck driver it's more like there's a lot of regulations and things you have to know process and equipment and technology and everything's integrated with technology now so it's much more technical. It's not a grunt job anymore. Right, right. You know, it's it's a good it's a good job uh, where you only need about well they they like you to have four years of school. Um, really, for, for a lot of the jobs, you probably really only need two right now. Sure. But but they're they they give preferential treatment. But you've got to be able to write. You've got to be able to read. That means they would like a bachelor's. And, they'd like to right. be, they'd like you to have a bachelor's degree. And actually, I had the HR guy from Hibbing Taconite speak to my class a few years ago now back when they were hiring, talking to my, um, I think it was diesel mechanics at the time, about what they look for. and They put their new applicants through uh, psychological testing. Um, Wow. And, and of course, we're used to the drug testing and and, and that kind of thing. They do that. But they also do psychological testing. And really, my reading of how he was describing this is when they hire someone to drive a haul truck, they're actually looking for someone who might one day be a foreman. Sure. You know, sure. And they don't want to close that, that path off. They, they, they don't want to create a class of workers who. Your, your high end is a truck driver. Right. So you start there. Who starts and, in, in 45 and, years and later, as, you're going to be Never aspires truck. or is never capable of right. going beyond that. Right. Um, now, there's a lot of, you know, you get into the union politics, all this. They, the, sometimes people like to say, oh, they're really just breeding out the union sentiment from, <laughs> from workers, right. you know, and all right. this. And so you can get into all that. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah. it's psychological, though. Yeah, yeah. It, it's actually the same, some of the same testing they do for law enforcement officers. Sure. Because law enforcement, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm familiar with those psych tests because mm-hmm. it's, I mean, really a great law enforcement officer is a personality profile. Mm-hmm. That is very unique. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ability to withstand long periods of boredom 
then interspersed with like intense moments Life of action. Yeah. yeah. Not lose your calm, mm -hmm. be able to talk to people, judgments sociable. And, yeah. yeah. Be able to make mm -hmm. good judgments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are very, yeah. um, it's a very unique skill set. Yeah. We have law enforcement at the college too. So, I mean, oh, okay. so I, I work with that group as well. And in a lot of ways, they're trying to professionalize mining the same way, which means of course that in an economically like I said, 1982, we've been in a what you'd call a rough economy. Right. Uh, most places would call it a rough economy. Certainly an a, a unbalanced, uh, unsustainable economy. And so as a result, getting people who fit this profile is actually a, a challenge for them. Mm -hmm. Which means we still have a lot of people who don't fit in, in that matrix. You right, know? right. And, and then you pl plus you bring in an, an area that has a... Um, well, it's just certainly a visible uh, drug and alcohol problem mm -hmm. that often falls along with unemployment and poverty and, and things like that. You know, the guy told my class, he told, and they'll anyone who does hiring here will tell you, getting people who can pass the the urine tests uh, a big deal. is a challenge. Right. Actually, that's not unusual for a lot of places. Right. So we we, we often think like, okay, well, we just got to take all these people who are unemployed and under underemployed and 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 just put them in the mine like the old days. Um, but that was back when mining was an unskilled banging on the sides of right. a, a, I don't want to oversimplify it. No, but, but when the union was there because right. people were commodities that they were mm -hmm. just ripping apart. Yeah. Right. That's what the unions rose as, as a, because they were putting these people in as fodder, basically. Right. Fodder. That's a good, that's a good yeah. way to describe uh, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting crushed by the machinery, getting crushed by the equipment. And then when someone did die, they, they just say next. put in the next right. guy. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't even speak the same language. They were all immigrants, you know? Right. So it was, it was, a lot of times their families hadn't even been around yet. So they, these are strangers. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the labor movement that arose to protect against that. And now that we've kind of come full circle on labor, I mean, mining jobs are the best jobs in the region. Right. Um, right. I mean, the for, safest, the highest pain, I, I mean, the most benefits. You know, right. there's president of the college or, <laughs> uh, you know. They're the, they're the best jobs that are widely available. To right. people or, right. or, or attainable by yeah. a wide I mean, a, a mining income puts you in because we're kind of an economically uh, deprived area of sorts you're in a upper middle class sure you know if you are a miner and say your wife has a one of the widely available jobs uh say a nurse and and you're both senior in your organization you, your kids can you're go, doing really well yeah your kids can go to a private college right you know mm -hmm. and maybe you could help you know, more mm -hmm. than your average couple could. Right. So these are great jobs now, which is a totally different perspective than when they were not so great jobs. You know, I always say like economically, I look at the people working at the Walmarts and the gas stations and the hotel uh, hospitality people uh, in places like the range. And they say, those are the- Those were the miners. Those were the miners. Yeah. Those are the unskilled workers that were fodder when when something happens or if they don't if they're not convenient to have around you 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 get rid of them and you hire the next person right you know the next person to move into the area it, it seems like the economy here though has has and, and maybe it's because of the supply demand of labor to a degree but has become more that you can look back at the mining town and you can see, you know, where well, you had a mining store mm -hmm. and you had, you know, the people who worked there and they mm -hmm. got paid. And then that, that kind of graduated to where you had these towns mm -hmm. with some private related businesses, mm -hmm. everything from the restaurant the, to the hotel yeah, to the, yeah. you know, the nickel and dime store, what have you. The, the very early mining bosses, the, the, the mining companies, 
they kind of resented these towns that formed up around the edge of the mines because they added things that got in the way. <laughs> you know, right. whether it was right. the saloons that attracted their yeah, men yeah. off the work site or um, the uh, the businesses, and, and then, then they start moving families in, and they've got families, and they start suddenly want a little bit more than what they've been getting. And, right. And then the towns want things. Now you're things. getting all uppity. The towns yeah. want things. Right. They want streets, you know, things like <laughs> that. And then the mines are like, you're going to come to us for your streets, aren't you? And uh-huh. so there was this weird relationship with the town. Um, and then, of course, when it became necessary to have the towns, then the mining companies would seek to control the towns. And then, sure. And then it, you go through this process by which the towns declare their independence of right. sorts. Kind of liberate them. themselves right. slowly. Um, yeah. But to your point about how those service jobs are kind of the dominant field right now. That's actually borne out in, in labor statistics. The office, uh, Minnesota Office of the Legislative Auditor um, released a, a report on, actually on the IRRRB, one of the sponsors of this tour. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you look at, there was, I, I took this graphic out of there and wrote just about this one graphic right. because they, they actually looked at the proportion of employment in the region. And they had what mining was, which was a a chunk that existed here. And they compared it to the state as a whole. Now, as the state as a whole, mining is a tiny, tiny little thin, uh, less than a tenth of a percent. But around here, it's, I think, about 10, 8 to 10 percent of the, no, not that, not even that high. It's like 6 or 7 percent. Right. And, and. um, I read that thing you wrote. It was very, it was a small portion. Yeah, it's it's a small portion. Now, then people will argue, and of course, in. As you know, online there's long comments. Really, threads. people argue online on the internet. I'm not, oh, people I'm not, on I've the never internet, experienced and sometimes <laughs> they're not really nice. Um, but, uh, Just for because we didn't mention it yet, but Aaron writes a MinnesotaBrown.com, right? <laughs> Yes, that's it, right. It writes a blog and has for many, many years. And yeah. you know, you have. I read your blog. You, you, you have polite and intelligent comments. It's actually very good. And yeah. even the people who would disagree, typically it's pretty pretty well. But sometimes the internets get a little yeah. a little crude at times. Yeah. yeah. Basically the the counter argument to that is well, it's a small portion of the jobs, but look at the the impact. The amount of capital the, the amount coming of capital, in is huge. The capital right. is is, right. is very clearly tilted towards mining here and, and right. that is all true. Right. Because um, you know, like I said, one miner makes what three unskilled service positions make in town. Right. So yeah, there's fewer fewer jobs, but they are, you know, better and then the money coming in invested in the in the mine and the vendors and the work, the tires. I mean every everything with mining is expensive. Those huge tires, the equipment, the beds of those giant trucks. Everything mm-hmm. is has to be fabricated specially and and so there's all these support businesses that are located here that that go up and down with the mines. And so you look at all that and you say, yeah, obviously it's a big factor, but I guess what I'm trying to say and what I, what I think is pretty obvious if you live here, Mm -hmm. especially if you get off your lake cabin and hang out with people like I do for work and in other ways too, you think like, you know what, these people are working double shifts at gas stations and stuff and, and they're not getting ahead. Right. You know, they're not getting ahead there. And rent is actually pretty high considering where we are and mm-hmm. you know i mean it's it's not as high as it is in duluth or minneapolis but, no but it's inflated but it's inflated yeah and and uh, i mean i just think about 15 years ago um my wife and i lived in an apartment and i i i think the rent has has doubled on mm-hmm. that same apartment mm-hmm. since in 15 years right but nobody's making that much more money right you know especially at that entry level you know 
you know, if you're making twenty four thousand dollars, I might, I, we might have made twenty four thousand dollars a year back then, and I bet the same people in that same apartment are probably making the same, same amount, amount of money, paying double rent, paying twice the rent. And I look at like the gas station and the Walmart mm-hmm. and all that, and and I see, I see the capital coming in with the mining, mm-hmm. but then I see it like just turning around and going right back out. Oh yeah. Like there's like what economists, you know, would, would term the velocity of money internally is very, very low, but the velocity of money like leaving is really high because yeah. we're not producing. I mean, this is true of the Brainerd area. It's true of the iron range. There might be some mining supporting things, but I mean, we're going to highlight this week, a co-op and a, a local brewery and some of the, mm-hmm. but those are really rare yeah. kind of things, even though those keep capital mm-hmm. within the community. Where do my peers spend their entertainment dollars, their food dollars, their mm-hmm. their shopping dollars for clothing and mm-hmm. things that they would want? And there's places to shop locally, but it's part of the culture. And it kind of has this, this old idea, and this is small towns everywhere, but um, the old idea of if it's in the city, it must be better. <laughs> right. 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 You know, um, <laughs> So they'll the, the the idea that McDonald's represents some type of fine dining. Yes, which actually, I mean, I'm I'm going to say this as a kid, it certainly was. Yeah. like it we, was. We call it fine squ- Scottish cuisine in our <laughs> in our home. But yes, I mean, I grew up like, <laughs> oh, steak again. I would so much rather have a McDonald's yeah. hamburger. Right. You right. know, <laughs> but the idea that the, that these chains or things that exist, and I know you talk about this a lot, but uh, that that they represent some ideal. Um, and that's part of the consumerism of our time and, and, right. and all that. But, but the fact is, you know, the, it created this unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy in that it became, it's very difficult to keep a hardware store. Um, you're watching the drug stores all close. Now there's some various regulatory things causing some of that, but the drug stores are closing. The small grocery stores are closing and it's, it's purely because people's spending and, and shopping habits are conforming with, Trends, well, you know. And what I see is that there's a there's a whole strata in there of the people who used to be the chamber, the economic development people, the the the, the merchant class in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah. That if you went to work at the gas station or the retailer, you kind of noted that that was like a, a temporary thing I was doing because I was essentially working my way up the ladder. And at the top of that ladder in the retail market was the person who owned the retail store or the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And now that's just gone. Yeah. That's like not a, that's not the, a possibility the, for the, anyone. And I, I always, because uh, I worked in newspaper and, and believe me, I, when I went to college, I firmly believed that I would be a lifelong print journalist. Yeah. I, I believed that. Yeah. And I was one for a short time, but when I kind of stumbled, I was the dog that caught the bumper of the car. I, I, when I was the boy editor of the Hibbing paper at a young age, and um, I got to be management and that, uh, middle management, really, because right. editorial's not. <laughs> You're like management kind of bites. <laughs> well, I was middle management, so I was uh, at these meetings. I had to smile at the big boss right. and, and do all that, uh-huh. and then they had to say, "Well, twenty five percent. Where are you going to get that? Right. You know." And then you got to go down to your team and tell them why that's why Joe's not there anymore and right. this kind of stuff. Right? You know. Um, uh, <laughs> but I was. The, it was actually a very educational experience because I, I we eliminated the composition department. These wily old guys who used to do the paste up oh, and, the, yeah. and the lead and all yeah. that stuff. Um, we literally eliminated that whole concept when I was from the two and a half years I was editor. So I went from these guys scaring the crap out of me when I was a, 
uh, the, just a reporter, and sure. then I was suddenly their boss. Right. And then, and then I got uh, well. Then yeah, they're lay all them gone. Off, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then they're all gone. Yeah. And um, and so watching these companies sell each other to each other, and and the debt and the leverage, and we need twenty mm-hmm. percent this year because we just sold the company, and we need to make back whatever. That you know, whatever right. capital fund that bought right. this thing needs to make back that moment, and then it gets cut out of the. So this is happening in the newspaper. I was and and, and uh, the Hibbing Daily Tribune, which I still write a column for, and is a lovely newspaper. I should probably point out, and with yeah. its wonderful owners. Uh, no, um, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> but when you look back at, they just had the the history Hibbing Historical Society just had their annual dinner, and they. Um, it was themed around the Hibbing Daily Tribune as the oldest newspaper in the in the region. The family, the Hitchcock family that ran it for sixty some years, and the the one the Hitchcocks served in the legislature, and they served in the community, and they were they were publishers of the paper, and 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 th- this paper was you know this point of pride, and 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 they were big, huge, thick papers full of community news, and and how. That's not even possible anymore, right? You know, right. Mm-hmm. you know, because the owners are are in Maryland or somewhere now. I don't, right. you know, uh, who knows where they are, right? Uh, and they'll never even come here. Maybe, maybe they will, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whole world where oh, that's so and so, the publisher of the newspaper. They're shopping at the store owned by Mister So and So, and 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 they're going to hire local people because they believe in our community, and and they're going to commit to. Providing that product that they make because they they love this place. This is where they want to live. And even if some years are kind of bad, they're going to keep going. Um, right, right. The, but that's it's that's gone. the part that's gone. And how do you, and I think we're kind of sorting through how do we recreate that? Do we rebuild that? How do we get there? And and when you go to the community planning and visioning and well, let, let me throw, that. let me throw this idea out to you because I think you and I could talk policy for days and never really disagree <laughs> on a lot. But the one place that we've kind of gone back and forth on is uh-huh. on broadband. Oh, high, broadband. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 and the idea oh, that. Oh, and now it turns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming after you now. I, all this was a buildup for yeah, me to right, beat you right. up on broadband. I'm, I'm ready. I think that one of my like gut, um, reflexive reactions to the notion that we should have some state policy to run broadband everywhere mm-hmm. is a reflection on the idea that for a lot of time in the range, it's been, you know, I'm with the government, I'm here to help you. And then we walk away a decade later. And what we see is that these cities are more hollowed out than when we started. The economy is more fragile than when we started. It's more stratified. There's more people working at the gas station and at the Walmart than used to own their own business. But the people who were part of creating that, they got paid, they got their money, and they don't live here anymore, or they, or they never lived here in the first mm-hmm. place. So I don't think we like disagree on the fact that like a technology economy is a big part of what's going to make this place work. Mm-hmm. How would you react to, to that analysis? That the, yeah. the, 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 the idea that maybe what we don't need is a, another program, but we actually mm-hmm. maybe need less programs. 
When it comes to broadband, I, I started out a very big proponent of the public cooperative. Well, you're kind of a Marxist. I'm a... <laughs> I guess if you're going to draw a line, then you're a fascist and I'm a Marxist. I guess that's the equation. But um, no, I'm a fairly traditional liberal politically, yeah. though I'm, I have a, quite an independent streak in me that gets me in trouble around here. Um, but I think getting after this broadband issue, you know, when I started out, um, I, I actually I wrote a column and I still use it as like a guidepost. I don't know that I believe everything I wrote in that piece like 10, 12 years ago. But I, I, I talked about Huey Long because I've always had his Huey Long fascination. Yeah. Huey um, Long's fascinating guy, especially <laughs> in this part of the world. Yeah. yeah. And, and I always look, I look back at, and all, all the King's Men's always been my favorite novel, and which is not Huey Long, but you know, rhymes. Uh, is very, very, very similar kind of attitudes. And then you will read the actual Huey Long story and, and, uh, this back kind of backwoods Louisiana, big income from oil offshore, but poor as dirt, you know, everywhere else, especially in the northern part of the state. Right. And then you got this figure, you know, and it wasn't just him, but he was a figurehead for for this idea that we can take all that wealth and 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 literally share our wealth as the, right. as the Huey Long program goes. And I always had this fascination, like, could we you know what he did with roads, for instance. He paved roads that, by our modern metrics, would did not would not have qualified for pavement. <laughs> sure. And he did things like to get the legislature to go along. If they gave him half the money he wanted, he would pave the road in mile long stretches, right. leaving, leaving dirt patches in between, right. so that the legislature would have no choice but right. to finish the gaps. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and of course, that's just, a brilliant opportunity. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's like the ultimate gamesmanship, but. The idea that you could will a place into into progress, you yeah. know, and use the resources, you can deem them the people's resources, and yeah. try to get it so that it benefits people. And so I was very hung up on that when I started about broadband. Um, I, I used, uh, we need more, uh, less Huey, more Huey, I think was the, the yeah. line in my column. <laughs> and I, I still fundamentally believe that broadband is a utility, mm -hmm. and that I would equate it in our modern economy to electricity uh, or phones. Right. Yeah, totally. Not yeah. roads um, and not sewers, mm -hmm. but but if a place is has a line coming into their property uh, uh, with a with electricity and a phone line, my view is that in our modern world, it, that should also include broadband. It changes everything. Yeah. It changes everything. Right. Now I am. I have backed away from the uh, Red Star, uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'm open to the Red Star. Right. But if we aren't going to do the Red Star thing and we're going to have privately delivered service, I'm fine with that. Right. Um, I don't care anymore how it happens. But I do believe the public has an interest in seeing broadband equated with these utilities mm -hmm. as opposed to something that – one is bestowed upon if they're if they're bestowed broadband if they're if they're fortunate or if if they win a contest or something and in a way we we still have that system anyway because we're we're slowly making the progress these companies the problem is the companies will make money but they will lose money for a short time or a period of time before they make money sure and that's a risk equation right and and so how can we – I always – I'm advocating that the government, I guess, if you want to say that, help 
in that period, help these companies take the bite in the public interest of getting broadband out there. Now, there's a second part of where I think we've d- gone a different direction. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is to do what, what, what does that say though about where we live and, and how we choose to live? Sure. And, and I think, um, because you and I both are rustic rural people. Yeah, yeah. And yet I concede as, um, much as you advocate that we try, we have to try to make these towns self-sustaining, right? You know, because without the town model, we can't all live in uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's you know semi-suburban utopia where all the development is spaced out over this whole whole area. I think the town needs to stand, and so if you're putting a lot of money into extending out you know infrastructure out into the Tulies, mm-hmm. we, we talked about that last time. Yeah. You're not spending infrastructure on some very basic things that would make this town, which has available housing stock and has available space and and abandoned spaces we want filled, you know, are we missing out on that? You know, if we're spending money on this, I I, I still view broadband as is a is a as a thing that if you look at you mentioned young people don't necessarily want to work in the mines, but. They do, if you're from northern Minnesota, you do want to live in the country. A lot of people really want to live in the country. And right. so we have this, and, and entrepreneurs and people who come, business owners who come, say, I might want to, I might want to expand my plant here. They're, they're, they, they will do that, um, but they themselves will look mm-hmm. at properties to live in it out is, in the country. It is very interesting because, I mean, I am a byproduct of this as well. Mm-hmm. My, my dream uh, after college was never to move to Brainerd and live in one of the core neighborhoods. Yeah. It was to have property way out on the edge of town on a lake or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I grew up on this farm. I would love it's, to have had It's literally one of the moments that I knew I, I was going to marry my wife mm-hmm. was early on when we were dating. We were talking about our futures and we both wanted to live on a lake in northern Minnesota. And that's exactly where we live now. Right. You know. Right. So, I mean, you have that element. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wonder how much of that is... Mm-hmm. Like that's our dream. Yeah. Is that the the next generation's dream? Yeah. Um, is that our dream because of the price point mm-hmm. it was at? Mm-hmm. I would love to live on Gull Lake, for example, which is the like the premier lake. Yeah. But I I never will yeah. because even if I had that ridiculous, you wouldn't of want money, to spend that much. That's money. not what I would yeah. spend it on. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and actually, you're seeing that now. See, we our dream was really possible because we are we built our house. Uh, on family land yeah. that had been in the family since World War II. Yeah. So your kids, that might not be an option for them from the same they, the If same they want to live on the land that we will have owned and in, in, in the house we will have paid for by then, yeah. then yeah, it could be a family estate. Right. It could be a compound. <laughs> the brown compound. It could be a compound. <laughs> but if they want to go do something else and, and when we kick off, they end up selling it, goodbye. Yeah. You know, yeah. th- then you're you're back into if you're... In the elite, you can live wherever you want, but other than that, you're you're, right. you're stuck in town. I, I want to ask you one last question. It's kind of a personal question, yet mm-hmm. I, I I don't think you'll mind. It's tough sometimes to be the critic in your own. You know, you can th- never be a hero in your hometown. Well, it's it's the Jesus you know quote. You'll mm-hmm. you'll you, you can't be a prophet in your own land. Yeah, I I, I get that. Uh, the whole other side, it's not even so much as being the prophet, but being the the person who stands up and says, like, look, I don't think this is working. Mm-hmm. I love you all and I respect you all, but maybe we need to talk about something different. 
you've been that guy. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be that guy. It's 15 years um, since I started at the paper, I started the journey of being that guy. Yeah. And I've been that guy for 15 years. And I was just talking to you before. I mean, is it starting to fray a little bit? Am I getting a little tired of uh -huh. writing the same thing uh -huh. in response to the same set of stimuli? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, it certainly shaped me a lot. Um, there are people here who don't like you. There are people in Brainerd who don't like me mm -hmm. simply because I've pointed out mm -hmm. some uncomfortable truths, yeah. some uncomfortable realities. Yeah. And I've formed some conclusions about way things are done or operating that, that threaten the way prominent people do business and prominent people make their living. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. What advice would you have to other people in this region who have similar thoughts or notions, other people in other parts of the country who, you know, uh, for whatever reason, like it's often the first one out is the one who gets shot. Yeah. But you make a path for everybody yeah. else. But I use up a bullet. You use up a bullet, right. <laughs> is, 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 does every community just need yeah. some of those people? Uh, here's where I find my zen, my peace, my, my purpose, I guess you'd say. Some people like what you have to say and they say, you ought to run for office, <laughs> right. you know, right. or the detractors say, well, why don't you just go start a business then and, and sell, you know, your salads or whatever it is you uh, hippie. You if hippie, you're so smart. Yeah. Right. Go, go, go start a business and then you'll see how it really is. And I, I say, well, here's why I haven't run for office and here's why I haven't started a business is those, those things are not what I feel I'm supposed to do. Right. I'm a journalism major who is a, is now a teacher and a writer. And um, my calling has always been to write and to observe and to learn and then, and then share what I learn with other people. You know, nobody likes the tax collector either or um, you know, the cops. You know, the cops have to come and they arrest your buddy because he was drunk and screwing up. And then the cops, the jerks, cops, the bad cops guys. are right, jerks, you right. know. So, but they have a job to do. I have a job to do. And mm -hmm. it's not my job always to be liked I really love the place, uh, like you love your your home area, mm -hmm. and and so I have to remember that if I do love the place. I've made the choice to live here. I it be, might be easier if I stopped writing about it and just I could just clock in at the college, teach some classes, go home, and take up a hobby. Mm -hmm. um, try to tune it out. <laughs> try to tune it out. I, I've tried that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that's not my calling. That's not what I'm supposed to do. And it will be said for however long I do this until I die or get shot. Uh, well, same thing. Whether I kick off naturally or unnaturally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, that, that I will have tried this. And that I will have laid down. Uh, you know, it's like I teach my students when we do the research, talk about research. You know, it's, it's not about that it's, you know, why is it so important to have a work cited? I always say... You know, when you're citing, when you read about something and then share it, you're building part of the human knowledge. Right. The collective the, consciousness. The collective consciousness. And yeah. so people will look, like somebody in the future will say, what was going on in northern Minnesota in the years 2000 to 2040? Yeah. There'll be a history of the Iron there Range some, somewhere. There and there'll is, be some crazy guy and, named and, Aaron and, Brown. And, and my name's going to maybe appear in a few of those references. Right. And, right. And, and maybe they'll know who I am. Maybe it won't matter anymore. But I will have made some observations that future people could use. Right. Not that even that, I'm not even saying that's the most important thing. Right. It's just that my place is here now in this time doing this thing. Uh -huh. I could be totally wrong. If, well, between me and 
the editor of the Masabi Daily News, one of us is definitely wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> one of you is absolutely, history is going to look back and say, that person was a fool. Right. So, maybe I exist to make that, make him look better. Right. Uh, you know, uh, who knows? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love it and I just I just love doing it and um and it hurts and it's painful and it's annoying mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. and and I might not always do it the same way I'm doing it now uh, but you know, I might write different I'm thinking about writing another book and things mm-hmm. like that you know and right. and and you know maybe I I, I pause the daily uh, what was Socrates the uh, gadfly sure um, maybe I stop daily gadfly work and you know, go to a year long gadfly project, um, if only to get out of, out of the daily, uh, mess to think for a while. But, but this is what I do. And this is what I feel is important. I said, that was the last question. I'm going to ask you one more. Okay. You do this radio show called the great Northern. I haven't even played it yet. Here's what I want to ask about it. I want to ask where you think, not necessarily today, but where you hope it will fit in the, the cultural experience of the range uh-huh. and and northern Minnesota. It, it, maybe yeah. just describe yeah. the show a it's little a bit. It's a variety show, and then but it's a it's a old time variety show. It's like it's bar- on the radio. Yeah, we we're, we have a stage with one microphone, and a few other in the bands have microphones. But it's like a Grand Ole Opry. You do uh, music, Prairie Home Companion in the old days, right? You know, kind of a mm-hmm. uh, kind of a show. And and what makes it maybe a little different than your imagination of what that would look like is that we're we're just ridiculously local. Right. We go to a small town. And I always, if you ever saw the movie uh, Waiting for Guffman, uh, oh, the, the uh, Christopher Guest, uh, the, it's a it's a small town theater troupe or a small town community theater um, is putting together their play about the history of their little town, and they hear that some big critic is going to come and watch their play, and so they're <laughs> yeah. trying to make it so good uh, for this critic who's going to whisk them all away to fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our show is on a local level. We go and do an old-time radio variety show in a small town with with some local talent, and then I bring in usually like a the Muppet Show style. I'll bring in like a statewide act, you sure, know, sure. someone someone might have heard of, and and then we'll we'll do a, a whole show with skits, and I do. A but you have local musicians, local yeah. actors, kids, local, yeah, the yeah. whole thing, yeah. And and um and where does it fit? I tell you, that show s- saved me being able to do this work because I was I had hit a kind of a personal uh, collapse at one point here back in the late uh, 2010s, and. And I, I wanted, I needed something important to do mm-hmm. that wasn't just me thinking I'm so smart, you right. know. Right, um, right. <laughs> you I've know? been there too. It's like, okay, I'm sick of so, hearing myself say so, these things. I right. need an intellectual pursuit. <laughs> right. Um, so this thing was truly bringing a bunch of people together and celebrating a town, being positive without being Chamber of Commerce schmaltz, you know, it was an yeah. honest thing, but but just we're having fun. We're going to go to this town, we're going to have fun, and we're going to laugh at things that are funny about this town, and we're going to love some things that are great about this town, and we're going to all have a fine little show and go have dinner afterward, and if people liked it on the radio, and if people liked it when they come to see us, then great. And and generally speaking, the 
it's been a positive experience. People, people yeah. kind of like this little thing. Uh, we're not famous and we're not being picked up. I don't know how you'd even run this thing nationwide. It's so weird. It but, is weird. <laughs> the vibe is great though. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're just having fun with it. And it, it's, it, once again, I like to think that all the weird things I do and I have a weird resume, mm. but of all the weird things, it's all kind of related to just, you know, loving a place and, mm. and, and celebrating what's great about it and, and celebrating people. Uh, and, and doing something that makes people happy and better and stronger, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of why, where that show came from and why we're still doing it. I, I really felt that you captured that in, in the couple that I've listened to. And then the one that I was part of uh-huh. just fun. I mean, just like this was cause you came to my town mm-hmm. and for me living there, I mean, if you said, Chuck, write a script about your town, it would have been like dark and, yeah. you know, just yeah. like, oh, like this place is going all to hell. Yeah. And you come in with your like fresh eyes yeah. and, you know, smile did, and did. say, but you, you talked about how like the town was a railroad town and it yeah. was, you know, and it, it was a fun story yeah. about like the future of this place and how it could be great. And it was, it was just a refreshing Fun time. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad you liked it. That was a time traveling train. We went back through the the history of Brainerd uh, <laughs> with a time traveling train. And, uh, and, and you gave me two lines and I, I screwed them up, but it was okay. Oh, it's okay. You actually said that at the time. You go, oh, I couldn't tell. But I jumped because I'm a drummer. I'm good at like reading, <laughs> you know, percussion music. Little X's. Yeah. yeah, but not like, you know, on stage in front of a bunch of people, Rick, you know, a line. Uh-huh. And I jumped in front of the person and like I said, my, my line was like a surprise line. Yeah. And I said, I was really surprised because I went before the person who was supposed to react to, is it like cue up my surprise? Yeah. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Aaron Brown, thank you so much. Yes. Thanks, Chuck. Um, we actually should do this like way more often. Oh, so. yeah. This is fun. Yeah. All right. Take care, Yanoi. Oh, yeah. All righty. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Take care then. <laughs> We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 